0: everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone joining us here in Lebanon and remotely to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center's Marilyn K. Vidal Distinguished Lecture in Oncology Nursing. I'm honored to be able to introduce this lecture as Marilyn played a big role in my oncology nursing career at DHMC as well as, as, well as many other nurses in the audience today. Marilyn Vidal retired from her position of inpatient nursing director of hematology and oncology and the Associate Director of Oncology Nursing at Dartmouth's Norris Cotton Cancer Center in January of 2007. The Cancer Center established the Marilyn K. Bedell Distinguished Lecture in Oncology Nursing to honor the exemplary leadership she showed over the course of 35 years of caring for patients with cancer at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. The Bedell Lecture brings distinguished guest speakers to the Cancer Center each year to address relevant trends and future directions in oncology nursing. This year, we're fortunate to have Dr. Ann Katz joining us from Winnipeg, Manitoba, who will present obesity, friend or foe, to the individual with cancer. Dr. Katz began her nursing career as a registered nurse and midwife in Cape Town, South Africa in the early 1980s. She received a bachelor's degree in nursing in 1994 and a master's degree in 1996 from the University of Manitoba. She then went on to complete her interdisciplinary doctorate degree in 2000 from the University of Manitoba. Anne is a dynamic oncology nursing professional. She currently serves as a clinical nurse specialist and sexuality counselor for the Manitoba Prostate Center in Winnipeg. She is an adjunct professor of nursing for the University of Manitoba. She is currently the editor-in-chief of the Oncology Nursing Forum and a contributing editor editor to the American Journal of Nursing. She serves on many journal review boards. Anne authors a monthly blog in the ASCO Connections, and in 2016 received the APEX Award for Excellence for blog content. She's well-published, often addressing difficult topics of sexuality and cancer survivorship. Anne is is a well-sought-after lecturer. We were fortunate to have her here to present this lecture in 2014 on cancer and sexuality. In 2016, she was awarded the Maura and uh, Flaherty Memorial Lecture at the Oncology Nursing um, Annual Convention. Please join me in welcoming Ann Katz, who will share with us her research regarding cancer and obesity and open a dialogue about weight management and the barriers that exist in delaying this important conversation with patients. And then, of course, the mandatory statements. <laughs> Dr. Katz does not have any financial interests, She reports that she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. She attests that she is not receiving direct payment from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. At the end of the presentation, we'll take some questions and answers. Those watching remotely will have an opportunity to ask questions as well. The CME code for um, this lecture will be presented um, outside the auditorium on level three. And if you're looking for CNE credits, please make sure that you sign up on the um, sign in sheet by Paula down here at the desk on the front. And at the conclusion of the lecture, um, we'll ask Marilyn to draw um, a name for us. Um, Dr. Katz has, um, has, has brought a uh, copy of her newest publication, Healthcare Provider's Guide to Cancer and Obesity, which we'll um, raffle off at the end of the session. So I'm going to turn the podium all over to Dr. Ann Katz, who will present Obesity friend, or foe to the individual with cancer.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for the kind invitation to return here. Um, I'm always happy to be uh, away from the cold in Winnipeg, but it could be told it's colder here than it in Winnipeg right now. I've been freezing for two days. Um, I really honored uh, Marilyn to, to be giving this lecture again. I feel it's a, a double honor. and. Uh, I I stand in the shadow of giants, and and you're very much there. So um, I actually do have one disclosure to make, besides all of these, and that is that I have struggled with my own weight for most of my life, as my mother did and her mother before her. My uh, adult daughter told me one day, you know, I'm just tired of having all the women in my family constantly being on diet. So in part, that actually was the impetus to uh, my interest in this, uh, this topic area. My mother was a two-time breast cancer survivor, and as I've learned now, no doubt her being overweight, dare I say obese, actually contributed to that, so it hit rather close to home. So what I'm going to talk about today, fairly uh, briefly, because I really want the focus of this talk to be on what we as oncology care providers can do to get ourselves prepared and to gain the confidence to talk about a really sensitive topic. We don't want to offend, we're afraid to offend, so we literally leave this topic as the 350 pound elephant in the room. And I have learned over the years that as difficult as it is for some of us to talk about sexuality and cancer, my other professional interest, no professional interest, it's perhaps even more difficult to talk about this because many of us struggle, um, and I think that uh, there there remains a taboo. So I'm going to talk about obesity and cancer development, I'm going to talk a little bit about what this means for our patients, uh, and then talk about some of the struggles uh, that we have talking about this, and the research that shows us just how conflicted we often are about this And also they talk a little bit uh, about strategies to enable us to talk about this. So it is really clear, and the evidence is overwhelming, that obesity and and overweight has become a major health issue for those of us living in North America. (coughs) And you can see the difference between 1985, where... Um, you know, There was either insufficient data, because we weren't collecting this data about this topic, um, moving through to 2016, which is uh, the, the latest uh, data that we have, where we can see so many pockets um, of uh, the United States of America. Look down south, where over 35% of the population is overweight or obese. This really should be a wake-up call to all of us as healthcare providers and as individuals, that this is a tough this is a public health catastrophe waiting to happen, not just in terms of the development of cancer and poor outcomes for obese individuals with cancer, but also in terms of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, overall morbidity and mortality, as well as costing all of us a lot of money. So uh, obesity is rapidly overtaking tobacco as the number one preventable cause of cancer. We've all got the tobacco message, but somehow some of us have not gotten the obesity message. So we know, and you'll see in a diagram shortly, that uh, we have good evidence now in 13 different types of cancer that there is a direct association with overweight and obesity. These numbers are, I think, fairly shocking. Over half of the cancers diagnosed in women and about a quarter in men are overweight or obesity related. And they're preventable in part. And we've seen a significant increase over the last nine years, and that continues. Um, Here are some more statistics for you, for those of you who like statistics. Um, And we see the greatest burden in the most common cancers, breast, Prostate and colorectal, and that's something that I certainly see clinically. I see a lot of in my role as clinical nurse specialist. I help men make a, diagno- a treatment decision making when they're uh, newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I can probably count on one hand the percentage of men who are not overweight or obese. It's become really endemic, and we certainly see this in women with breast cancer. And treatment for breast cancer, where even healthy uh, weight women will gain weight and they're unhappy about it. Certainly there is uh, an association with the comorbidities, so while it may not be the cancer that eventually causes their death, it is very often these other obesity-related conditions, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, that leads to increased mortality and and morbidity. So what's the connection? With our current understanding, um, it relates to insulin and insulin-like growth factors. So individuals who are overweight or obese um, have insulin resistance, uh, which uh, promotes the development of certain kinds of cancers. Chronic inflammation, which is a problem with overweight and obesity, and inflammation is associated with the development of cancer. So it's not unusual for obese individuals to have low levels of chronic inflammation, and, and, and thus the cancers grow. We also uh, know that for women, our bodies aromatize um, estrogen, so the more fatty tissue you have, the more overweight you have, the likelihood is that your levels of estrogen go up. So <coughs> in the risk of the development of breast cancer, a hormone-dependent breast cancer, or a recurrence uh, after treatment, And certainly we see alterations in tumor regulators and adipokines like leptin in overweight and obese individuals. So all of this creates this fertile ground for the development of cancer. And this is something that is not understood by many individuals. It's not common knowledge. And I think we have to help in getting that message out that it's not just about (laughs) cardiovascular disease, it's also about cancer. And while we don't want to instill fear in our patients, I think in the general population, perhaps, you know, suggesting that there is something that they can do for cancer prevention that is not easy to do, certainly, but is within the individual sphere of ability to do. Here's a nice little uh, diagram from Dana-Farber, uh, which I would like to see printed and put in clinic areas and examination rooms, because our patients seem to sit there a lot of time looking for something to read, and this is probably then and in 1985. Um, So we see an increased risk for breast cancer, liver and kidney cancer, endometrial cancer, multiple myeloma, uh, some brain cancers, thyroid cancer, esophageal cancer, and of course colorectal cancer. And I'm going to be talking about the obesity paradox, particularly in colorectal cancer, um, in a little while. So, you know, I think this is really a handy little diagram. I suspect that it's going to go out of date very soon as we gather uh, more and more information. So we have strong evidence in, uh, in the association between obesity and the risk of developing esophageal cancer. Uh, there's a 9% increase for five kilograms, about 11 pounds, 11, 12 pounds. So for 11, for every five kilograms of weight that a man gains, his risk for colon, colon or rectal cancer goes up by 9%. Uh, this is even worse for obese men In terms of biliary tract and pancreatic cancer, we see a 56% increase. And that is really significant. So a risk for endometrial cancer in premenopausal women, kidney cancer, multiple myeloma. For postmenopausal women who gain weight, um, we see an 11% increased risk of breast cancer for every five kilograms of weight gain. And it's extremely common for women postmenopausal to gain weight. And five kilograms may not sound a lot. I think perhaps 12 pounds sounds a little bit worse. I'm from Canada, and we're a bit <coughs> conflicted about metric and imperial weight, so I'm sort of used to talking in both. Um, I know you're, you're imperial all the way here, despite the rest of the world going metric. <laughs> and one thing you'll even get rid of those copper cents. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely free, let me tell you, <laughs> none of us have seen it other than our wallets are their so thing. Uh, and we also see an increased risk uh, for postmenopausal women who develop that effect, right, their, their waist-to-hip ratio changes. So this is really strong evidence. Um, In terms of, and I'm now going to be talking about certain kinds of cancers, in terms of breast cancer, the outcomes for overweight and obese women are really not good. And these women, as we know, are absolutely terrified. Um, So when they uh, gain weight fairly quickly or they're overweight at diagnosis, um, they have a, a large increased risk of overall or breast cancer related mortality, Um, even for those with early stage breast cancer, which we know can have really good outcomes. For women who have been treated with uh, chemotherapy and particularly the aromatase inhibitors, it goes beyond vaginal dryness, and I get vulva into every talk I get. Just <laughs> a warning. So. I'm done. It's the most I use word in the English language, so I sneak it in somehow. I just got it um, So you're safe now. It's done. Um, so, so these women, because of their obesity, have worse outcomes. Um, it's frustrating because it's difficult to talk about, and these women are not often trying to lose weight, and they find it very difficult to lose weight. So I think sometimes we really have to, um, you know, take a multimodal approach to this, and not just be focused on the scale, but also talk about cardiovascular health and the importance of incorporating physical activity and eating healthy, uh, rather than just kind of, you know, throwing up our hands, as we often do, and say, well, there's nothing we can do. So, um, you know, eating healthy, I hesitate to say healthy, clean, eating clean. This has become a buzzword. What does eating clean mean? me, it means washing your hands before you eat, but I think it has, it has other meaning now with organic and all kinds of stuff. Um, we also see um, in treatment um, that these women have poor surgical risks, and that should be a no-brainer for many of us in, in the room. They have problems in terms of uh, perfusion during surgery, their wounds may dehisce. they're more uh, susceptible to getting a, a post-operative infection, which causes them to stay in hospital longer, causes problems for them at home. And they tend to recur uh, more frequently, even for those who are on neoadjuvant therapy. Um, and of course, there are issues related to dosage of chemotherapy, and I'm going to talk more about that uh, in a little while. Uh, but sometimes, you know, because we fear the toxicities, particularly of chemotherapy, <coughs> so these women are actually undertreated because their body surface area is so large um, and there's, there's some um, fear about uh, causing additional toxicities if we give them dose according to their, their body surface um, area. Um, And we also see a distance recurrence rate increase for women with with hormone receptor positive and hormone receptor negative breast cancer. So the outcomes for these women are, you know, can be poor because of something that they can actually do. Um, And I think that's important as well because in an uncontrollable situation, our patients often want to do something to give them some semblance of control. So I think that might be a hook to encourage them. So for men with prostate cancer, Sometimes when we uh, do when we screen them uh, by their PSA, if they are overweight or obese, they have higher blood volume, so what we see in their PSA may actually be better than it really is. So we might, for, for example, see a PSA of four and or below four and we think they're okay and they don't need a biopsy, whereas in reality that PSA is that low because of the hemodilution, and if they were of a healthy weight, their PSA might be six or seven, which would prompt further investigation. Their Mm. prostates tend to be larger, and so with a 12-core biopsy, you're perhaps missing um, a prostate cancer that uh, is perhaps more aggressive, or you're seeing less volume, but that's because of size relative to the number of cores. Um, it can be difficult to do a digital rectal exam in a very overweight uh, man because it's just logistics, um, it's just hard to get in there. And in these men, uh, we tend to see more aggressive cancer, we see them dying of cancer more often, uh, and they tend to progress as well as having a biochemical recurrence. This is one of the questions around the higher incidence of prostate cancer in men of African-American descent who tend to be larger in size than their uh, Caucasian counterparts. Um, And despite men often having higher levels of physical activity than women, uh, we still see this association. So even obese men who are physically active have an increased risk uh, of prostate cancer because of their obesity. Um, We also see that um, they are at increased risk of dying of their prostate cancer. They have poorer pathological uh, features, so uh, extra-prostatic extension, positive surgical margins, uh, they have the same surgical complications that we see in, in um, overweight women, so we see problems with uh, wound infection, we see problems with uh, wound dehiscence, um, and we also see in these men an uptick in their pathology. So the biopsy may show um, an intermediate risk of prostate cancer, but the uh, pathological specimen comes back and it's an 8, 9, or 10, which then necessitates other treatment, particularly antigen deprivation therapy, which in itself raises their risk for diabetes, um, uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, and other uh, really poor outcomes. Um, this to me is really interesting. Women who wait cycle, and, you know, I'm one of them, and there are probably other people in the room. I've lost, the same 65 pounds now six times. I'm really good at losing weight. I'm terrible at losing at all because I love food. Uh, so weight cycle increases a woman's risk of endometrial cancer. Uh, there's a higher risk for obese women in terms of uh, ovarian cancer, and we all know the problems associated with that with many diagnosis and poor outcomes. Uh, and these women also have really a lot of morbidity associated with their feet, so they tend not to do well. Colorectal cancer, strong association, particularly for men with obesity. Um, Once again, surgical complications, post-operative complications. But colorectal cancer is one where we see this obesity paradox, so we see worse, we tend to see worse outcomes uh, for men who are thin or underweight at the time uh, of, of diagnosis and treatment. So the question, you know, is is this the chicken and the egg? Um, how does this, what came first? <coughs> so it may be that nutritional reserves, i.e. having additional <coughs> adequate nutrition hanging around, really does provide an advantage for people with acute illness because they've got some sores to draw on. Um, However, we also know that when people have more advanced disease, they do tend to lose weight uh, because of um, uh, those cycles uh, that that, uh, they encounter. There is certainly a risk, particularly for our older patients, that when they lose weight, they become increasingly frail Uh, They lose muscle mass as well, uh, and they are at increased risk for falls, uh, which sometimes can really be the beginning of the end for them, so it's not the cancer um, that kills them, but perhaps they get a subdural hematoma, or they fracture a hip, and then it's really a a, a domino effect that leads to their demise. Um, Weight loss um, at diagnosis tends to be a, a, a... marker of more aggressive or advanced disease. So this is weight loss that is associated with the fact that they have cancer. It's not a causative uh, association there. And of course, weight loss is probably a marker of subclinical tumor activity. So they've lost weight before they're diagnosed, and that's because the cancer's there and the cancer is active. So in general, we know that there are many reasons why overweight and obese individuals are resistant to seeking medical care. They're going to be lectured by their primary care provider about the need to lose weight. They're going to be reminded, that, as if they need to be, that they're overweight or obese. It's stigmatizing, um, so they are less, also less likely to participate in screening programs. So they have a whole host of reasons why they don't attend for care when we may talk to them about the need for screening for cancers uh, like breast cancer, uh, <clears throat> cervical cancer, uh, when radiation has to go through you know, a foot or so of adipose tissue, you're going to get poorer imaging. Um, we, they, we can be sure that their tumor markers are that accurate, hemodilution uh, surgery can be really, really difficult. One of the urologists that I work with says to me, please, you know, when you see these men who are obese for treatment decision-making, ask them to lose some weight because I'm gonna be up to my elbows when I have to remove their prostate. He doesn't say that to them, I have to say that to them. <laughs> um, and I know that, that our surgeons are often uh, reluctant to do laparoscopic surgery uh, on obese men because it's just that much more difficult, and, and, and oftentimes they want um, lap- laparoscopic rather than open surgery. Then there's the whole issue of chemotherapy. Are we overdosing them, are we underdosing them? And they are also at higher risk of thrombotic events during chemotherapy. So, you know, what what is a difficult situation for most of our patients, rate is made even more difficult. And I'm going to talk about some of the shame and blame that we see as well, um, that really has a significant effect on morale and, uh, and, and on the stress for them. So this is the audience participation part of my talk. That's the question and answer. So, when we see a patient, as we often do, who is too overweight obese, borderline, overweight, what should we do? Should we ignore the proverbial elephant in the room? Anybody? No one's gonna. No one's gonna. That's a bad one, right? um, Should we raise the topic gently? Hands. Okay. Should we actively talk about weight loss for these patients? Okay? Should we just refer to one of our dietitian or nutritionist colleagues? Yeah, right? Don't want to go there. That's what they're there for. Well, kind of sort of not really. Many of our di- registered dietitians are very, very busy trying to help patients who have lost weight, who have cachexia, and don't particularly have the time to see these individuals who have, you know, lots of fat reserve. Um, And the reality is that what they would suggest, and this is from my personal experience, is what I know to do, and that is in Canada, I say go to Canada's Food Guide, right, and just follow it. Green leafy vegetables, colorful fruits and vegetables, lean meat, you know, try fish and chicken as opposed to beef, which is kind of quite hard sometimes to do because people in Canada like their meat and potatoes, Um, you know, some healthy fats, um, and... There certainly have been some uh, interesting uh, meta-analyses and recommendations from uh, experts in this area, including a fairly recent article in JAMA that suggests that if you want to suggest weight loss, the patient just has to find something that works for them. It doesn't matter if it's you know one of those proprietary things like Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig or Atkins or Weight Watchers or Paleo or, I mean, you name it. Intermittent fasting seems to be getting a lot of publicity right now. There are some interesting science related to that. Take it from me, it's really hard. Um, but whatever is going to work for that patient is going to work for that patient. But it's not just the patient. You've got to deal with the whole family, and I'll talk <coughs> a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. I think the most important thing to do is to avoid the shame and blame that we so often see. This is a topic that is really stigmatizing. And people know that they're overweight or obese. And actually, yesterday afternoon, I was waiting for Sheila to come pick me up because it was hailing, <laughs> and she bravely offered to run for her car and she came to pick me up at the entrance. And one of the first things that I saw, there were a couple of wheelchairs parked at the entrance, and there was one of those oversized wheelchairs, right? It didn't have side arms, because sometimes people do fall over, even those things look to be about four foot wide. And I was thinking about how, you know, this has ramifications. It's fantastic to actually see that you have these oversized wheelchairs because try squeezing yourself into a normal-sized wheelchair if you weigh 300 pounds. Not easy. Um, It's good to see that there aren't those side-arms because they will be spillover. But I also started thinking about who's pushing that wheelchair, right? And is it one of the the nursing assistants? Uh, is it a family member? Is it one of the nurses? And what can we do to harm ourselves when we don't have the appropriate equipment? I have one of my favorite patients, a, a, a very nice 60-something-year-old man uh, with advanced prostate cancer. and He was in, he was hospitalized recently, and I put on my white coat. The only time I ever put on my white coat is to go into the general hospital, because I think there are coonies there. And I put on my coat. Um, and I went to see him, and he'd been in hospital, he, he'd thrown some clots, and, um, so he'd been on, uh, uh on antibiotics, he was septic, and he'd been in hospital for about three weeks, and he's a great outdoorsman, he's a hunter and a fisherman. Um, and I said to him, hey, would you like to go for a little bit of a walk? Um, and the physio had just been there and actually had got him up into a wheelchair. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I haven't been outside for three weeks. I said, come on, I'm gonna take you outside famous last words. He weighs about 350 pounds. He's a very big man. He's probably six foot five, and, and he's been on androgen deprivation therapy for about three years, so he's probably put on about 50 pounds, and I could not realize this. And man, I had to put my back into this, and I got him into the elevator. We hit the door once. Um, I apologized, because I could not turn him around in the elevator, so he was looking at the back wall, which I felt really bad about. And I dragged him out when we got to the ground floor. And I thought we could just like, do a little turnaround and know he wanted to go outside. Okay, we're going outside. Um, and I managed to get him out. It wasn't easy. The door didn't order, open automatically. I figured somebody to help me. But it was hard. And I just saw back afterwards, right? And that was just once. His partner, who is even shorter than me, uh, was so grateful to me. Because she said, I just actually can't push it. Um, and it's one of the reasons that they're not sending him home for home antibiotics is because he's just so big that she can't manage him. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, he's sitting in hospital longer than he needs to be, eating hospital food, um, getting depressed. Uh, there's nobody around really to take him out. Um, so it really does go beyond sometimes what, what we imagine. So, yes, we need to be raising the topic gently. You are not telling anybody anything that they don't know. They know that they're overweight or obese. They see it every day. They experience it every day. There really is no one-size-fits-all, and the (coughs) thing is to be person-centered. Ask them, what have you done about this in the past? Because they've tried, right? And they may tell you, you know, I was on, I don't know, such and such a diet, and it didn't work for me. Okay, so maybe we need to try another tactic. I think this is something that we can really talk about in the context of general health and survivorship. And so many of our patients, you know, get through treatment and and they are really in that case. Treatment is chaotic and traumatic for them. So perhaps talking about it during treatment is not the way to go because they've got other things to think about. But certainly within the context of survivorship care, this is important. As with anything, you know, if you your mouth shut for long enough. Your patient is going to start to talk. Human beings hate silence when we're looking at somebody else. So the trick is, and this is an old therapy trick, right? It's he who or she who gets to keep their mouth shut the longest gets to learn information. So keep quiet. And we're our information givers. So it's a skill that has to be learned. Listen to what your patient says. Listen to their struggles. Maybe they come from an area where they don't have access to affordable fresh fruits and vegetables. I see a lot of uh, what you would call American Indians and we call indigenous people. And many of our patients patients live on reserves that are accessible during the winter by winter roads. They actually build these roads made out of ice. So for three months of the year, supplies are trucked in. The rest of the time, they have to fly supplies in. And it's expensive to fly things in. So a gallon of milk can cost $9. A bag of potato chips, $1.25, right, because they're self-stable. There's often a long family history of poor eating habits. Some of our urban patients live in food deserts. They live in core areas of the downtown where there are no grocery stores. They're just convenience stores, which don't have lettuce, apples, bananas. Some of the good stuff that is outside on the table today. They have candy bars. And frozen meals. They tend to be high calorie, high fat, but that's what's accessible. Many of our patients are going to the drive through, right? Because they're having treatment and they're working and they're parenting and that's all they have time for. And you know, you can get two burgers for like a dollar or something. I, I don't go to those places very often, so I don't know, but I see the ads on television. Um, getting patients to move seems antithetical to them because they're tired. And certainly, we've seen, you know, a huge amount of evidence now of how physical uh, activity mitigates the fatigue associated with cancer treatment, but is actually so counterintuitive for our patients because you're too tired to exercise. So, how do you get them on that bus that says, if you get moving, you'll have more energy? It can be a struggle. You know, because you we've all heard this and we made those same excuses, that everyone has excuses or reasons why they can't do it. I don't do the cooking. My wife buys the food, right? And I don't have any control, so she buys what's easy to cook. Or she likes pasta, so we have pasta every night. Or she makes really good pierogies. Do you have pierogies here? Right, she my wife makes the best pierogies, right? And with fried onions and bacon on them and sour cream, oh, they're just the best. And I love, right? Food is comfort. Food is love. Uh, so you know what the excuses are going to be. So be prepared. And I've, got, I've got some pointers at the end. If, you know, you can see when a patient has stopped listening, right? Those shutters come down, their body language changes. Stop. Just stop. He or she can't listen, can't hear in that moment. Move on. There will be another opportunity. There is bias in society in general against people who are overweight or obese, Um, and those exist unfortunately in our healthcare settings as well. People stare, people comment, and these people have all been exposed to negative comments. Many of them have been overweight since they were children and they were teased and bullied. So they know, or they think they know, what is being whispered, right, as they walk by. So in terms of workplace, we have to be proactive. We have to recognize we need those large wheelchairs. We need big beds that can take people who weigh 400, 500, sometimes 600 pounds, because they get cancer too. We need protocols for the management so that it doesn't cause a huge uh, kerfuffle, that we are ready to deal with these patients. That... You know, a bed will be available for them without the patient have, having to witness you taking the normal-sized bed in and struggling to get, you know, the large bed in. We need to have safe assistance and lifting uh, policies and procedures for all healthcare providers. So anybody who's going to touch that patient needs to know how to do it safely. Because what you don't need then is healthcare workers who are injured on the job, and you end up paying workers' on compensation and you have even more uh, job positions open. And we need to approach this in an educated way um, and have, really, the the help of everybody in the team to deal with this. So it's all our responsibilities. It's not not just she So how do we talk about this? There's been some interesting research in this regard. Patients know when we're judging them. Because they're not stupid. They see the eye rolls, eyes rolling, eye rolls. Um, They they can see the looks that we sometimes give each other in, oh my gosh, how are we going to deal with this one, right? They see it. Um, And if they feel judged, they are going to be resistant. How many of you would be comfortable saying to a patient, I know what it's like because I've been there as well or I'm there as well? So sharing your own personal struggles with weight. Anybody? I do. Um, when I'm, so I weight, weight cycle. Um, it's like, I feel like I'm an AA in um, <laughs> And some of my patients have seen me when I'm 105 pounds, which is where I, in this part of my body, I, my brain loves being 105 pounds, because I wear size 00 and I buy expensive clothes. And then I gained 50 pounds and now I'm wearing a size 10 or a size 12 and I'm beating myself up and I walk around in sweats most of the time. Uh, so, And sometimes my patients see me when I'm overweight. They worry about me when they subsequently see that I'm thin and they ask the other nurses, is Dr. Katz okay, you know, her hair really short and she's really thin, is she okay? Um, <laughs> kind of nice. They care about me or pretend to care about me. But I will say to them, yeah, you know, I look for now but my body likes to weigh 165 pounds. So I fight this every single day, multiple times a day because I have to make a choice when there's a tray of muffins in front of me. Am I going to eat the muffin or am I not going to eat the muffin? I ate the muffin today, right? Tomorrow I'm not going to eat the muffin. Um, So I feel comfortable saying I know what this is like. And I believe that that is a, creates a bridge of empathy. And perhaps then that patient will listen to me because I, have not, I not only talk the talk, I walk the walk too. But not everybody's comfortable doing that and it's not something that you have to do. You have to feel comfortable doing that. Unless you're a registered dietitian, you actually don't have to give weight management advice because that's not our expertise. But you can say, we know, that in order to lose weight, you've got to find a way that you can do it within the context of your life and within the context of your family and within the context of what you are actually able to do. And it doesn't matter if you do Weight Watchers or you do something else or you just, you know, if you become a vegetarian. Um, I'm a bit concerned about vegan sometimes, um, but you've got to find something that works for you. And I refer you to somebody who can help you and do I can tell you that what your increased risks are in the context of your cancer diagnosis, but I'm not the expert on weight loss. That is what registered uh, dieticians are for. I can refer you. Would you like to refer? So what is happening in the real world? This is a fairly recent study. So this is women with gynecological cancer, increased risk for ovarian, cervical, and endometrial cancer. 50% of them were clinically obese. Only 20% had received any advice about weight management. And they, want, they were open to hearing about it. 80% of those who smoked were told about smoking cessation. But the elephant in the room just sat there in the corner. Only 20% received advice. Here's another study. Oh. Uh, women with gynecological cancer, 70% of them were overweight or obese, just 14% had received advice from their oncologist. And most of them said that if they were offered advice by that oncologist, they would be more likely to follow that advice. So don't be afraid to raise the topic. If people are told to do things in the interest of their health, they will at least try. And ignoring it means that they won't do anything about it. However, our patients do judge us. They tend to judge physicians more harshly than they judge nurses. I'm not going to go down that road. Um, so so um, this, uh, this researcher of PURE has done a lot of really interesting work in this regard. And they found that if the physician is overweight or obese, the patient is less likely to follow their advice. Because, you know, physician heal thyself. How can you be talking to me about using weight when you're not managing it yourself? And so perhaps facing up and saying, hey, look, I'm trying. Right? I'm not obviously trying hard enough, or I'm not doing it right. But I carry this burden too, and it still is uh, important. However, there there are some other studies that say that if you are about the same size as your patient, they are more likely to listen to you. Because no one likes to take If you're overweight, you don't want to take advice from a skinny mini, right? But what do they know, right? Sometimes they know. But that is human nature. And that bridge of empathy, certainly, uh, <coughs> I've been there. I know how hard it is. Let me help you try. The public knows surprisingly little about cancer risk. Only 30 31% recognize this link between obesity and cancer. About the same number that talk about the risk of alcohol, and certainly with all the recent press about one drink a day, two drinks a day. It's a bit confusing. I think I need three drinks a day to cope with all of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, only 30% could identify alcohol as a cancer risk, and I think there's probably some deliberate denial there, right? I just <laughs> actually don't want to face that fact. Even less talking about um, exercise as mitigating cancer risk, and yet people know about tobacco and sun exposure. So that message has gone down really well. Um, So, you know, and everyone used to smoke, right? I was telling somebody else that uh, we were talking about, uh, um, you know, working, um, that if you can lean, you can clean. So if you're not doing anything, you should be cleaning. That's how I was raised as a baby, nurse. so you made yourself busy, because who likes cleaning? Um, but So I used to empty the, the ashtrays next to the patient's beds. Yeah, oxygen going, they're smoking. Right. I'm, I'm getting rid of the butts because um, I didn't want to clean. It. But the tobacco message, for the most part, has gotten out. I think there's certainly uh, jurisdictional areas where it really hasn't there. Well, the A lot of smokers still in the south, um, uh, much less so here. I actually haven't seen any cigarette butts in South Africa and I haven't smelled any smokers. Oh. You guys are doing a good job. And I see you've got signs outside as well. I often will take pictures of patients their Ivy poles outside the hospital, and they're standing outside the sign that says, do not smoke. And I see some of my uh, nursing assistants out there too. Obviously. Cancer is very much a teachable moment for all kinds of things, but particularly around giving patients and their family members Something that they can do in a situation that is absolutely devastating. (coughs) So, I am frequently asked by the spouses or partners of men newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, What can I do about his diet? Does he have to stop eating red meat? You know, what does he have to do? It's a teachable moment. This is something that that partner or spouse can control. So, I then say to them, Okay, let's talk a little bit about what your dietary pattern is at home. Well, we snack late at night. Okay, is that something you'd be, you know, what are you typically snacking on? Well, he likes a ham and cheese sandwich and I like popcorn. Okay, let's talk about that. Maybe you can have, still have that popcorn. Ham and cheese, probably not a good idea at 11 o'clock at night, but maybe you can have some air pop popcorn without butter on it. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, so now we need to leave out the popcorn and go for something else. Um, but people really do, particularly family members, really want to do something. Remember that family members can also sabotage efforts that the patient is making, and often that is where the damage is really done. The general population thinks when they see someone who's had cancer, who has lost weight, they immediately think that person is going to die. So, you know, food is also love. So very often it's, have a piece of cheesecake, you know, you've lost a little weight recently. Um, So often the patient or the survivor themselves wants to do something about it and they're sabotaged from family members. So we need to address that, right? What's happening in your family? What are the messages? How do you celebrate things? How do you mourn things? Food is in there, right? Because that's what we do as human beings. But because cancer is a teachable moment, we can really make a difference, not only in the individual's life, but also in their family members. So perhaps by getting the whole family to eat more healthy, we can prevent a breast cancer in that patient's spouse or daughter, right? So you're getting bang for your wife. Um, there have been a couple of studies uh, you know, on this topic around people <coughs> modifying uh, their nutritional intake. And it seems that while, uh, that, that when, People are encouraged, cancer survivors are encouraged to to change their lifestyle. Um, Only about 50% are actually able to maintain those changes, the the lifestyle changes. So it's not an easy path. But 50% is better than 20%, right? And maybe we can even push it to 60 or 70%. Um, Family and friends who are highly motivated around the time of diagnosis to do something fall off much, much more quickly. And they just uh, tend to give up. I'm not sure how well you can you can read this, but this is um, some advice around you know how you can actually talk about all these different things. So, for example, achieving and maintaining a healthy weight. Um, the recommendation is you know just don't gain weight, Tra- track your food consumption, and get some physical exercise. Um, And the questions that you can ask are, you know, how are you feeling about your weight? Do you want to lose weight? Do you feel you need to gain weight? Are you happy where you are? Um, If you have gained uh, more weight, what do you think the reason is? Uh, Have you thought about keeping a food diary? Many of us eat unconsciously, and when you actually keep a diary, it is astonishing to see, you know, there's a bite here and about there, and a muffin that you had this morning that you kind of conveniently forget about tonight. i um, talking about uh, consumption of, of alcoholic beverages, which are empty calories and really get stored directly as fat. It's like do not have <coughs> up alcohol food straight into the fat cells. I'm um, talking about how to uh, eat healthy, uh, focusing on a, a plant-based diet getting more exercise. So there are some relatively simple things that you can do that are not that directive, that actually involve the patient and engage the patient in (laughs) figuring out things for themselves. There are also a lot of resources out there. ASCO has got some really good resources for us. Um, You can just uh, have printouts of the USDA Choose My Plate, which I think is a really great visual reminder of where protein, where plants, where fats need to go on the plate, which is easily uh, understandable. There are a number of free apps and uh, different web-based programs um, that patients can use, and other resources for for us to use to, to educate ourselves. Because for those of us who have been out of school for oh even five years, the game has really changed a lot, uh, and there's been lots of advances. So um, uh, there's a copy of my slides with um, Paula. If anybody is interested, I'm happy to share those. Just please don't use them without my permission. Um, time for questions and comments from anybody. This is the shameless self-promotion part. That's a, a, a cover of muscle. Published by the Oncology Nursing Society. Questions or comments? So, yeah, at the back. There is a striking
2: similarity between you know, the efforts on cutting tobacco use and targeting obesity. I'm glad that you mentioned the influence of the family unit. Uh, there is very little research in tobacco on the importance of family members who smoke and uh, the impact of the cancer diagnosis. So we have a, we're writing a proposal to study the uh, family unit in organization. So are there any examples of successfully combining of these risk, modi- lifestyle risk modification programs, tobacco cessation or prevention, obesity, sun exposure is one program or are they always separate because tobacco is really bad and obesity does not be that bad and
1: I haven't seen any, so there you go. I'd like to see something coming out of here pretty soon. No, and you know I think it's interesting. I think that we really have made progress in terms of tobacco cessation. Um, so it would be, you know, if you limit yourself to someone who smokes and is overweight, even though their risk is really exponentially higher, I, I, you perhaps would be hard pressed to actually find people with 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 both of those habits. So that would be limited. But I think the role of family is so important. You know, and often we do you know know—we're patient-focused. We need to be patient and family-focused because ultimately, our patients' families have the most influence on them and are both facilitators as <coughs> well as obstructionists uh, in our patients' outcomes. Thank you. Yes.
3: These families are identified. Family members are identified as the most uh, problematic people for individuals with obesity. Their doctors are the second. Yeah. And. Even obesity specialists, when going at national meetings and looking at bias, unfortunately there's a lot of bias that that is there. My comment, however, is that we're fortunate, and I wanted to bring it up, that we have a weight and wellness center here at Dartmouth, and among the opportunities to collaborate on the care of cancer patients is a program within it on culinary medicine. We've had this program for about two or three years, and it is designed to bring culinary competency to providers, students, residents, ourselves as as, uh, clinicians, and it is there are programs for patients as well and their families, and it's instructional, learning everything from knife skills to uh, the selection of food. But we're also doing it to ourselves. In front of Grand Rounds on Friday mornings, we teach about the food that we provide. It is incumbent on us, I think, as part of your solution that you're calling for, to become the skilled people in both discussing
1: it and in understanding what we're offering to our patients. I'd love to come spend some time with you. That sounds absolutely amazing.
3: Happy to tell you more about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. You can come back for a few minutes.
1: Okay, i come back. <laughs> okay. Put me in the of you know, this. I think that's wonderful. Comedy medicine. Man, okay, that's great.
3: We call it food as medicine.
1: Yeah. You know, which it is. Right?
2: I mean, it's, med- it's medicine for the gut, but it's medicine for the soul, too. Right. Excellent. Thank you. Yes? I, I'm impressed by the uh, recitation of, of the, you know, how obesity in- influences the incidence of cancer. But it seems like you have this special problem in clinical cancer care. And, uh, I'm also impressed that, that you're doing better with smoking cessation advice. But the benefits of smoking sensation are maybe more immediate to someone who has a, a lung cancer or something. Whereas to explain, it must be harder uh, to explain the benefits of, of weight reduction to, to people uh, with, with other types of cancer when, uh, you know, it, whereas incidents, it's almost too late. And, uh, so at that point, you're fighting other things like depression. and. Lots of
1: other issues, though right? no, I think that, you know, probably, what, 50 years ago, when when we started talking about tobacco, well, 50 years ago, I was a child, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so they, you, um, I, I think there was some resistance there as well, right? That, you know, smoking, you know, it helped people lose weight, right? Because you could smoke rather than eat. I think, you know, the biggest, I think there is, smoking has become stif- Right? I mean, I look at Canada, seriously, in the winter, people are like getting frostbite for the, to have a cigarette. Because you can't smoke anywhere inside anymore. Now we've banned smoking on patios and on the beach. So I, you know, I, think, I guess they're going to be smoking in their cars. So I don't you know how they do that. But um, I think the difference is you don't have to smoke, you have to eat. Right? To sustain life, you have to eat. So every time you eat, You have to make a decision about what you're going to put in your mouth, right? Are you going to put a piece of celery in your mouth? Are you going to put a tomato in your mouth or an apple? Or are you going to put a muffin in your mouth or something that's easily accessible? High fat gives you immediate pleasure. You know, so there's there's some self-gratification as well as so much of our life as social beings is surrounded by food. You know, you want people to come to rounds. You put out muffins. Right, you want, you know, or sandwiches or whatever. When somebody dies, there's food, right? A new baby is born, there's food. You know, that's how we socialize on the evenings. We go out for a meal, You have people for a barbecue, you know, you have a picnic on July the 4th. It's in, it's in everything that we do. Um, and I think also people, you know, it's, it's difficult. So most people have tried and then they give up so that it is a hard sell. But I think we just need to do it more because the evidence is there, You're right? So yes, you've been diagnosed with, with breast cancer or prostate cancer, but to increase, right, the chances of surviving this disease-free and actually having good quality of life, you need to do something about, you know, the 20 pounds that you've just gained. Yeah. One of your slides talked about the public knowledge of the various factors Mm -hmm. for cancer. And and I would suggest that if we had spent the last 25 years telling people that gaining weight or being overweight was a factor in cancer, that your number would be the last 25 or 30 years telling people that tobacco is a cancer causer. So while they may or may not quit smoking, I think that factor about the knowledge can really be tied to uh, public information campaigns. You know, so overweight obesity is overtaking tobacco as a cause of cancer. That's an important message. You know, the smoking the smoking cessation message got through, or the tobacco is a danger got through. We now need to just, you know, keep talking about that but include obesity as well. Thank you. Other questions or comments? Yeah.
4: Numbers are sometimes a tricky thing. So when we look at body mass index and all the statistics, dealing with patients with the emotional piece of their self-esteem, how they feel about themselves. I'm not sure what the process is in Canada, but typically on an inpatient or an outpatient clinic, first thing is patients come in, you know, for them to be compliant or eager to come in, weight, blood pressure, all the things that are... Probably being struggled with are the first things that they get hit with, and then they're sitting waiting for information. And just coming in can create higher anxiety and higher. So, but we are so number oriented instead of. So, even if none of that was done, I just think up front, done through because you have to be able to help people track and understand. But if that's done later instead of up front and deal with the person. And the perspective, instead of the numbers, that you know, that just seems to be something that can be immediately anxiety-provoking and more challenging to compliance or even starting that conversation. I
1: I don't disagree with you. I mean, we have the same pressures in terms of getting people through, right? And there's, you know, there's we're talking about the tsunami, right? Because we've got this big bulge of the aging population coming through, and time is always a issue, right? Um, But I think you know, picking the time mentioning it, giving people information to read that's written at the right level. And it's not something that has to be dealt with immediately or urgently, because it's taken twenty-five or 30 years to get to that point. That's why I've situating it in terms of survivorship, where people have gotten through right, the trauma of treatment. And treatment is traumatic for these patients in so many ways. It interrupts their life. So it's part of survivorship care, however that looks. And everyone's going to do that slightly differently. Um, so whether there's, you know, sort of more of a focus at a transition appointment, the ability to refer people without additional costs as part of their survivorship care, you know, I think we'll all find different ways of doing this. We don't do it perfectly either. I mean, you know, that's the point. Uh, but I think we need to make more of an effort because the numbers don't lie. You know, and I know there's certainly controversy around BMW and BMW BMI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and you know, I certainly am uh, often when I talk about this attacked by someone who says, you know, I may be overweight but I'm metabolically fit. You know, there's always that. You can be fat and fit, and there's certainly a big, you know, a big push now in, in certain areas around fat acceptance. I mean and that's what they call it, right? They don't count it in any other terms. It's around fat acceptance in programmes on television, you know, about this. But you know, the body doesn't lie. You can feel fabulous, you know, and, and your cholesterol levels can be through the roof. Um, you feel fabulous until you don't feel fabulous uh, anymore. But yeah, it's a sensitive topic. Yeah. So you said city When you say overweight, with what percentage overweight is associated with increased chance of cancer? That's a really good question because we kind of lump them together. Um, and... Um, you know, I'm going to quibble about a BMI of 24 compared to a BMI of 25, 29 versus 30. But I, I try and use the terms interchangeably. We don't actually have great information in terms of overweight. But you know, people who are overweight can slip into obesity really quickly. It's not, you know, those two are not that far apart. Um, so, so you know, there probably is a difference, but the focus really has been on people with a BMI of equal item to 30, which makes one of these. Maybe to draw the book. Marilyn's drawing the book. Oh, yeah. So thank you, everybody.